Well, children, as is always the case, you will find those, uh, or the words, that you will be listening for tonight in the, in the normal spot on the bulletin. You're going to be looking, or excuse me, listening for the words peace and division and divide and dividing. You can see where this is going. Um, debt, gospel, and of course, Jesus Christ. Uh, so those are our words this evening. Uh, in 1998, uh, 29 people were killed in Northern Ireland in what is known as the Oma car bombing. And that car bombing was carried out by a group uh, that called themselves the Real IRA. Uh, on that same day, Bono and the other members of the group U2 wrote a song entitled Peace on Earth. And it later, of course, appeared on the album entitled All That You Can't Leave Behind that was released in uh, the year 2000. And as you can, remember, uh, as you can uh, possibly uh, imagine, uh, it became a, or one of the most requested songs uh, after um, or in the aftermath of the World Trade Center bombing in 2001. Uh, the first verse says this, Heaven on earth, we need it now. I'm sick of all this hanging around, sick of sorrow, sick of pain, sick of hearing again and again that there's going to be or going to be peace on earth. Interestingly, The Edge, who, uh, or the guitarist, wanted to change the la- that last line to uh, sick of hearing again and again that there's never going to be peace on earth. He thought Bono's line was too cynical, um, but Bono won out. <laughs> I actually, though, think the last line of the song is most interesting because it asks a question that I think... Well, it resonates and it's in the mind of many, even though it's never vocalized or vocalized by only a few. And it says this, Jesus, this song you wrote, the words are sticking in my throat. Peace on earth. Hear it every Christmas time, but hope and history won't rhyme. So what's it worth? This peace on earth. In other words, Jesus, on your birthday, the angels showed up and sang, Peace on earth, goodwill toward men, to the shepherds. So, what happened? Where is it? Sure doesn't look like peace on earth to me. What's taking so long? And we get it, do we not? As we look around our world, and I mean, as I said last week, prolonged waiting creates or breeds discouragement and despondency and and ultimately surrender to hopelessness. We throw up our hands. But here's the thing, um, the angels, when they came to sing that night, um, and they did in fact announce the Prince of Peace, or or the arrival of the Prince of Peace, and that the Prince of Peace had come, uh, 
And that Prince of Peace was the Lord Jesus Christ, and He had come to earth, and, and while we know and understand that He is the only one through whom and in whom we can be at peace, or with whom we can be at peace with God, and, and He is the only one in whom and through whom that we can experience peace within ourselves, and we know that He is the one in whom and through whom that we, the only one that uh, will allow us to experience peace with one another. The angels nor God ever promised immediate worldwide peace among all mankind. They also never promised eventual worldwide peace among all mankind, at least not in this life. Worldwide peace is only promised upon not His first coming, but His second upon His return in the new heavens and the new earth. As a matter of fact, Jesus didn't come to give peace on earth, but rather division. And those aren't my words. That's not my take on things. Those are His words. His words that we have recorded here in Luke 12. That's our text tonight. Our outline is going to look like this as we walk through this passage. We're going to look at the gravity of distress, the certainty of division, the urgency of discernment, and then finally the enormity of debt. The gravity of distress, the certainty of division, the urgency of discernment, and the enormity of death. And as is our custom, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, by Your Spirit, would You grant power to the preaching of Your Word? Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Grant all of us the ability to appraise and apprehend the truth regarding Christ and His Gospel. Awaken our attention. Convict us. Challenge us. And we pray, Father, that You would also refresh us and encourage us and comfort us. I am weak and needy, and in need of you for this task to which you've called me. So would you grant me support and strength? Would you fill me with your Spirit so that I might be a pure channel of your grace and benefit your people? Help me to communicate clearly and with fervency and grace for the sake of Christ and His church, I pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, last week, uh, well, like last week, we're going to jump right back into the discourse that Jesus has been having with the disciples on this journey to Jerusalem. And having just addressed the importance of being ready and watching expectantly for His return, uh, having just spoken of being responsible or encouraging His disciples to be responsible and to work faithfully um, and, until He returns, and to also uh, be reckless, or, or to not be reckless, but to wait selflessly uh, for His return, we're going to see Him switch gears a little bit, and He's going to take the time to warn the disciples of what they should anticipate in the days 
and weeks ahead as they continue, uh, as they approach Jerusalem. He's going to say that their watching and their working and their waiting is going to take place in a context that's going to be very, very difficult. And then we're also going to see him change the audience. While there are others following him, we've said that he changes the audience as he goes. And, and tonight we're going to see him move back from talking to the disciples and, and move back to speaking to the crowd as a whole. And of course, both of those, those warnings aren't just for them. They're also for Theophilus, right? the, the one that Luke was originally writing to, but they're also for us. And so you're going to hear me kind of going back and forth between and kind of mixing up this as we apply these things and what Jesus was saying to those at the time, but Him also speaking to us. So we're going to hear, you're going to hear me say things like He said to them and, and then He's saying to us, and I'm going to use the pronouns we and our, and, and they're going to be mixed up. So I encourage you to follow along, but, but it's very important. We, we understand that, that these things are for us tonight. So let's look first at the gravity of distress in verses 49 to 50. Judgment has been this recurring theme in chapter 12, but even since, even prior, as we go back to the third chapter of this gospel, but in particular in chapter 12, Jesus has been speaking of not fearing anyone who can kill the body, but to fear the one who can kill both body and soul. He's spoken of the importance of acknowledging Him before men, because without that acknowledgement, He would not acknowledge them before the Father. We've heard Him speak of storing up treasures in heaven rather than on earth. And we've heard Him speak of the importance of, again, waiting selflessly and the consequences of waiting selfishly rather than selflessly. We've seen the consequences of being reckless. But up to this point, if you'll remember as you've, as you've listened, judgment has been referred to in the past tense. It was something that was to come. But in verse 49, that changes. He doesn't speak in the past tense. He speaks of judgment as a present reality. He moves to present tense. It's something that, that He's not just going to come and do later upon His second return, but it's something that He's come to do presently. And you'll notice the language, I came, past tense, to, catch fire, or to cast fire on the earth. Right? He had to come to fulfill what John had said back in chapter 3, verse 16, John said, I baptize you with water, but He, Christ, who is mightier than I, is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in His hand to clear His threshing floor and to gather the wheat into His barn, but the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. In other words, while full and final and complete and thorough and decisive judgment is in fact going to take place upon His return when He comes to consummate His kingdom, judgment was actually about to begin. He had come to begin the refining process. 
Listen to these words from Philip Ryken. He says, fire has a twofold effect. It consumes whatever is destined for destruction, while at the same time purifying whatever God ordains to refine. Fire always confer, uh, co- uh, consumes or purifies, depending on the nature of what it burns. It is an instrument of judgment, re- revealing things for what they are. This is what Christ came to cast on the earth, the consuming, purifying fire of God's judgment. And Jesus even says, I I wish that that fire had already been kindled. He desired for the fact that, he, he desired that judgment had already begun, but it hadn't up to that point. Something else had to take place first. The fire needed to be kindled or started. As, as you know, as when, you, when you go camping and you go to start the fire, you need smaller pieces of wood, something to get the larger going. And, and he's saying something else needed to happen. Something else needed to occur before the Spirit would begin His work. And Jesus says that, that kindling, that which would start the judgment, would be His own baptism. The, the kindle, that which would kindle the fire was his baptism. And, and, and we know he wasn't talking about his baptism with water because that's already occurred. Right? His baptism with water, again, occurred back in chapter 3 when John had baptized him. So he's talking about something else. And what he's talking about is actually the fiery trial of his crucifixion and death on the cross. He first must go to the cross and be crucified before judgment would begin. The baptism that he was to be baptized by and with was his own passing through the waters of divine judgment. His baptism would be that in which he was washed with the waves of his father's wrath. His baptism would be, in the words of one commentator, Him being plunged into the flood of pain and suffering. And the tension within him was very significant. Because on one hand, he desired for it to take place. He wanted it to begin. He was resolute. He had set his face toward Jerusalem. He wasn't going to be thwarted. He was relentless in his pursuit of that goal. Nothing was going to deter him. And that's because he was going to to be obedient to the point of death on the cross to take on the judgment of God as the substitute for sinners. He was going to experience the wrath of God that we deserve. He was going to undergo the suffering and the pain that was rightfully ours to bear. He was going to pay for our sins. In the words of Isaiah the prophet, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Peace with the Father. The angels were right. Through his baptism, he brought us peace with God. 
In Paul's words, for our sake, He, the Father, made Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, sin, who knew no sin, or to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might be, or might become the righteousness of God. But on the other hand, until it was accomplished, He was under a great or would be under a great deal of distress. Anticipating, on, anticipating what he was going to do and what he was going to secure on one hand, and at the same time anticipating a great distress, great anguish would fill his soul as that day approached. Thinking of the sneers and the jeers, thinking of the the rejection and the persecution that he would undergo, but more so than that, the fact that he was anticipating the Father's full wrath, that he would drink and the dregs of which would be poured out upon him. It was agonizing. He was anticipating feeling forgotten. He was anticipating this unbearable stress physically and emotionally. He was anticipating the weight of the unmitigated sin of all the elect placed upon him. He was anticipating unassisted solitariness. He was anticipating feeling abandoned, deserted in the darkness. But he would endure. He would endure the cross. He would endure the shame. He would endure the distress. And that's because of the joy that was set before him. Prophet Isaiah also wrote, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. For the Lord Jesus Christ, our salvation was worthy of the gravity of his distress. Well, in verse 51, Jesus said that this judgment or this process of revealing things as they are brings with it the certainty of division. And in verses 52 and 53, uh, he, he says that the, the, the dividing line, right, the, the dividing line, the certainty of division, the, the dividing line wasn't simply going to be between families, but within families. Right? He says it's going to be between father and, and be father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And we can, we can flesh that out a little bit and we know that not only was that dividing line, not only was that not simply between families, 
But within families, the dividing line also wasn't or isn't between genders. It isn't between races. It isn't between ethnicities or nationalities. It wasn't simply between social classes or political parties. And that's because what divides is not, the dividing line is not family of origin, it's not gender, it's not race, it's not ethnicity, it's not nationality, it's not economic status or political party. The line that's been drawn has been drawn right down the middle of humanity. And it divides the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And the dividing line is the Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the dividing line. The household of God is made up of those from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Because in Christ there is no Jew, nor Greek, nor male, nor female, nor slave, nor free. Every man, woman, boy, and girl is either a part of the household of faith or they are not. And whether they are a part of that household of faith or not is dependent upon and solely dependent upon whether they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God and the Savior of sinners or not. And no matter how cordial things may be, between those who believe in Christ and those who don't, it's just a matter of time before what Christians believe about Jesus causes conflict with those in the world who do not believe. He says, hostility from those who do not know Christ against those who do is inevitable. It is sure. And brothers and sisters, this hostility should never, ever surprise us. We shouldn't be surprised by it. It should, in fact, grieve us deeply. And it should grieve us particularly when it occurs within the most intimate of our relationships. But when it happens, we also need to remember something that's very important. Listen to these words from J.C. Ryle. He said this, let us never be moved by those who charge the gospel with being the cause of strife and divisions upon the earth. It is not the gospel which is to blame, but the corrupt heart of man. Christ is, in Him crucified is the, the dividing line, but the cause is the corrupt heart of man. And that's important for us to understand, it's important for us to remember we must keep that in the forefront of our minds because if we believe that it's the gospel that's causing the strife and the hostility, our natural response will be to forsake the gospel, to alter the gospel, to add to it, to take away from it so that the hostility would be removed. But if we believe it's the corrupt nature of the human heart that's the issue, we will hold fast to the gospel. We will embrace the gospel. We will continue to proclaim the gospel, regardless of the hostility, for it alone, it alone is the power of God unto salvation. And we've seen this throughout our study. From the beginning, we've said there have been only two choices 
There's no third option. He's been clear. People are either going to be for him or they're going to be against him. There's no neutral ground. All roads do not lead to God. There's a narrow path. There's a wide path. There's a road to life and there's a road and a path to death. Everyone has a choice to make. Either believe or don't believe. Embrace him or reject him. Count the cost or pay the price. It's Jesus or nothing. And that leads to this urgency of discernment. In verses 54 to 57, notice first in verse 54, he changes his attention. He, he shifts his focus from the disciples to the crowd. So now he's, he's speaking. They've, they've been listening. They're hearing the conversation that he's having. They're hearing the discourse as he shares with the disciples. But now you know, they're brought into this as he speaks to them. And as he does so, he communicates something very, very important in addressing them with what he's about to say. He is basically identifying who they are. As he addresses them, he's identifying them as those who are outside of the community of faith. He's identifying of those, or the, them as those who are a part of the evil generation that he's mentioned earlier. Though they were following him, though they were listening to him, they had not up to that point embraced him. And we can imagine or surmise that they hadn't embraced him because of the fear of men, as we've studied earlier. So they're on the opposite side of the line. And their being on the wrong side wasn't due to having not heard. Their being on the other side of the line had nothing to do with their own intelligence or their ability to comprehend or understand it wasn't due to a lack of intelligence. Look at verse 54. He says, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you see it at once. A shower's coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be uh, scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Those in the crowd were taking their cues from the religious establishment. They too were these mask-wearing pretenders. And they were acting like they didn't have enough information or that they needed another sign to make a thoughtful decision, but that was simply untrue. And Jesus said, look, you're acting like I've caught you off guard. You're acting like you had no idea I was coming. You're, you're pretending like you don't know what's going on. And he says, I don't buy that for a minute. You can interpret the weather and make decisions based on it, and, and you didn't know, or you don't know who I am or what I've come to do. He said, you see the sun, you, or first you see the cloud in the west, and you just decide to grab a raincoat before you go out. You see the south wind blowing, and you plan a sunny day at the beach. But you act like you aren't, you aren't able to interpret what's happened historically. You're, you're purposefully ignoring the prophecies that pointed to me and that I've fulfilled. You're purposefully ignoring the signs that testify to who I am and who I said I am. You're ignoring the message that I've been proclaiming. You've been, you're, you're ignoring the miracles that I've been performing. The fact that you're on the wrong side of the line is your responsibility. 
You're a stubborn, stiff-necked people. The issue was with them, not with the signs, because their issue was internal, not external. There was no question he was the Messiah. There was no question that he had come to save his people from their sins. There was no question that the kingdom had been inaugurated and that judgment was at hand and would one day be full and final and complete and thorough and decisive. And in verse 57, he basically says and tells them, this isn't a game. We're not playing a game here. You need to accurately discern the signs of the times and make the right decision. And in verses 58 and 59, he tells them they need to do it now before it's too late. There would be a time when it's too late. And that brings us to the enormity of debt. He said, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. The illustration is of debtor's prison. And we need to know two or three things, three things actually, about debtor's prison that will help us with this illustration. First, is that very few, if anyone that was thrown into debtor's prison was ever released. The, the debt had to be paid in full for there to be freedom And many times they would actually beat the prisoner to to put the family, right, to put the family in a position where they felt like they had to pay the debt for the person. But the exception rather than the rule was for someone to be released. Typically they were never released because the debt was never fully paid. Secondly, we need to know that that word translated penny is actually the word lepton and and it was the smallest amount of currency at the time. It was actually worth about an eighth of a, of a penny, an eighth of a cent. So it could read, you will never get out until you've paid the very last eighth of a penny. Which, of course, explains why so few got out. Because every debt was calculated to that eighth of a cent, which meant they kept track of that debt in very minute detail. Nothing was left out. And again, everything had to be paid. And third, there's no trial. We see that the one who owed the debt was presumed guilty. There would be no opportunity to make a defense before the judge. Once you stood before the judge, a sentence was rendered. And that sentence was... After the sentence, there was basically no chance for release. So it's no wonder that Jesus said it would be better... For the one in debt to make a plea, you know, make a plea deal on the way to, to, to work something out with the one to whom he owned money before they got to the judge. Because once they got to the judge, there would be no plea and there would be no defense once they arrived. And so his point to the crowd was this, and again, this is where the we and the hour come in here. Sin has left every man, woman, boy, and girl in enormous debt to God. Actually, the debt is eternal. 
every sin, no matter how small, has been added to our account. Every one of our sins. And we stand condemned with no hope of paying it off by ourselves. We stand in no hope of someone, of any one of our family members paying it off for us. It's our debt, and we're responsible for it. And because of that sin, because of that debt that we owe, the, the verdict is in, and we are guilty before the Father. The hammer has come down. So every man, woman, boy, and girl are currently walking, we are walking toward the judge. And upon death, we're going to stand before the judge. And if we arrive before the judge, he is going to pronounce us guilty. Throw us in the prison of hell with no chance of defense, appeal, or release. Therefore, the only hope is to settle out of court. Our only hope is to settle out of court. The only hope is to re repent, to admit our sin, to admit our guilt, to agree with God that we're sinners before Him, and we owe Him an eternal debt. We, we need to settle out of court and throw ourselves on the mercy of the Lord God, mercy of the court, and ask Him to forgive us. And to acknowledge our need of a Savior. And that Savior is the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Savior of sinners. He's the only one who could and did pay the eternal debt on behalf of sinners by His death on the cross. We only have one plea that will save us. And that is, I believe in Christ whose blood was shed for me. This is why Jesus said what He did and was written in John chapter 3, chapter 3 of John's gospel. He said this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And then He said this, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Brothers and sisters, the dividing line not just brothers and sisters, everyone in the room, the dividing line is Christ and Him crucified. And the question is, what do you believe? So let's talk about two takeaways. There are many more. Let's think of these two first. For those of you who are uh, who in the room who are not believers in, in Jesus, and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus, you're not a Christian, this is of first importance. Christ died for sinners, according to the Scriptures, was buried, rose again three days later, according to the Scriptures, and He did it for sinners like you and me. 
Our only hope is Jesus. We cannot pay the debt for our own sin. So we can. We don't want. You can pay it or he can pay it. So I urge you to repent and to believe in him, to trust in Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And the scripture says that you will be saved. Now is the favorable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. And the second is for those who are believers. Brothers and sisters, hostility and division is inevitable between those who believe and those who don't. It's going to happen. But again, the dividing line is an eternal one drawn by God. And that line again is Christ and Him crucified. Unfortunately, unfortunately, there is pressure upon the church today to to shift her attention, to shift her focus, to shift her time, to shift her energy, to shift her resources away from the battle that I will say is along the front line. We're to shift our, the, 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 the pressures to shift our focus from that battle taking place on the front line so that we would take our our attention or her, her, the church's attention and her time and her focus and her energy and her resources to fight skirmishes that are on, on the side, little, little side skirmishes along temporal walls of hostility that have been built or arisen out of the sinful hearts of men. And to make matters worse, there's pressure upon the church to to join with those in the world to fight those skirmishes utilizing the world's philosophies and strategies. So we're to, we're to cross the line and join up with those that really, if we're honest, once they're through with us, are going to oppose us. Because it's inevitable. So the truth of the matter is, if the, we, we need to remember that if the church doesn't jump into the fray and fight those skirmishes, those, those walls of hostility that are man-made, Others are going to continue to fight them without us. But if we leave the front line and fail in fighting the battle before us on the front line and go and join those side skirmishes, there will be no one left to fight the front line. Because no one else has been given the call to proclaim the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ but His church. We need to hold fast to the truth of the gospel 
We need to hold fast to the proclamation of the gospel and to proclaim it regardless of the hostility that we may experience. Not add to it, not take away from it. For it alone is the power of God unto salvation. It alone will break down as as souls are one to Christ, as people believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, those dividing walls will come down. We can join in these side skirmishes and fail to succeed in either one. Or we can fight the, the fight before us with the gospel and win both. The choice remains before us. May we be found faithful going to last week. May we be found faithful when he returns. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love, to lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. What are the hearts of those who have heard your word preached and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness for your glory, for our good, and for the sake of Christ and His church, I pray. Amen.